Welcome to Mixtapes with Mike, the podcast where I invite a guest to make us a mixtape of 10 tracks without using the same artist twice. We're going to talk about each song, and if you like the sound of what you hear, you can listen to the mixtape in full by clicking the link in the show notes of this episode. It's that simple. So if you're the kind of person who'd like a new mixtape each Monday, you should probably subscribe to this podcast. But that's enough of the hard sell. Let's talk about music. This week's guest is an award-winning stand-up comedian who has always stood out from the crowd due to his unconventional style. He played the lead role in three seasons of the BBC sitcom Uncle and has appeared on every primetime comedy show in the UK. This is Nick Helm. How are we doing? Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm all right. Plodding on, as it were. Making the best use of working from home, as, as you do. So we, we, we've never gigged together, like um, you, you're, you're a completely different stratosphere in terms of like comedy, um, but we've got a friend in common in Mr. Rob Kemp. Rob Kemp, yes. With the... But I wouldn't say that either. I just don't really gig. So I, I haven't gigged with loads of people, but um, I'm in my own, <laughs> I'm on my own circuit. <laughs> yeah, yeah um, you've definitely got your own audience at this point, haven't you? I, I wouldn't even say that. I just, uh, if I have to do a show, I will just uh, do previews to three people uh, and like more than three, but I've got like, <laughs> it doesn't seem to have any rhyme or reason. I'll be kind of like uh, doing my own little gigs by myself and then, um, yeah, and then I'll do Edinburgh. But I hardly ever gig really outside of Edinburgh. Okay. But that's like a rule. But yeah, me and Rob did Edinburgh last year together. Um, he was in a musical that I wrote. And uh, yeah, he's amazing. He's 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 good fun. Um, I didn't get to go up to do any sort of spots, as it were, the year that he did um, The Elvis Dead. But I did travel up for one day just so that I could see it. Yeah. And it absolutely I think I... Saw, I I think I, I I heard about it, and I'm like a massive, lifelong Evil Dead fan. And so when yeah. I when I heard when I heard that someone was doing like an Evil Dead show, I was instantly incredibly jealous. Well, you hadn't uh, thought of it. Well, yeah, that, uh, that someone else was getting associated with Evil Dead, and it wasn't me. And then I saw him walking around Edinburgh dressed up as Ash from Evil Dead and then I went over and I introduced myself and I said hello. And then I went to see him uh, and I queued up afterwards and got a photo with him. Um, And then uh, uh, I think I saw it about three or four times up in Edinburgh. I took different people with me. Yeah. I just thought it was such a, I thought it was such a great show, but it was also... He had like a real good attention to detail of like little things that um, that you wouldn't necessarily think to include in a show. Like there was a bit um, at the end, he sprayed his hair white. He did look a little like white streak down the side of his hair with like a uh, like a hairspray kind of you know like one of them cheap um, novelty like a temporary dye type thing. Yeah, and it was just sort of like, oh yeah, that's really good because at the end of Evil Dead Two, he gets scared and he gets a white streak down his hair, and so it's just like it was like an attention to detail that it was clearly a fan, and his Elvis voice was brilliant and the songs were great, and it, I even yeah, I mean, I'm not like one of them people, but I even made a suggestion to him and then he sort of like took it on board and he used it, 
Um, well, you, you, you're a better better man than I was because I actually sat down with him for a writing session before that Edinburgh um, with another comic. We were kind of go, going over each other's material, and we. I think he purposely left his thing till last, and then he explained what he was doing. I was like, "We we have no idea how to how to give you any input on this because it sounds bizarre." Without seeing the lengths that he was going to go, yeah, had no idea how to contribute anything to such an unusual idea. Yeah, it's a crazy idea, but it was crazy, and like it was my idea was literally um, he did. She's the devil in disguise. And I said, you should change that to she's the, she's a deadite in disguise. Yeah. Because deadites are what the zombies are called in the Evil Dead universe. And he said, oh, I'm not sure people will get that reference. And I'm like, you're recreating Evil Dead 1 through the songs of Elvis. Uh, if they're not on board already, <laughs> do you know what I mean? It's like... Uh, yeah, if they're, they're not already slightly out. invested in it. Yeah, uh, so uh, so he tried it and then he said, oh, it worked. But um, And then the following year, so that was 2018, I think, and then the following year, 2019, um, I did my show, I Think You Stink, and um, I've had lots of different casts in the past. And there's always been sort of like good people in there, but I think last year we had like, everyone was great. It was like a perfect combination of people, and Rob was in there, and it was just the best fun. So yeah, Rob Kemp's, yeah, he's he's great. Yeah. <laughs> so it's fairly obvious from your stand-up and the stuff you put out on BBC that you're a massive music fan. Yeah, I'd like. Well, I think <laughs> I am. I well, I like music. Yeah, but I mean. Uh, I'm not an expert. I write music. I spend, it's weird. I spend a lot of time writing music and thinking about music and I'll like compose stuff in my head. And then when it comes to sort of like sitting down and making a list like this, I could have literally just come up with 10 Alice Cooper tracks because I I basically almost exclusively listen to Alice Cooper. Okay. And like, you know, when someone comes over and you've got to play some music, I always freeze and I'm just like, I don't know what to play. Um, and so I'll just whack on Alice Cooper. But like, I've I've got like all of his albums on vinyl, and I've got like loads. I've been to see him like thirty times. I just, yeah. I mean, he's basically all I care about. And then, and, and then people are like, "Oh, you like heavy metal?" And you go, "Well, no, he's not really." I mean, I like heavy metal, but Alice Cooper isn't really heavy metal. He's got like a real. He's almost done sort of if not an album, at least a song in every single genre. You know, at the beginning of the 80s, he was new wave. He was sort of psychedelic in the late 60s, early 70s. And it was just sort of heavy metal came in. I mean, he was a bit heavy in the, in the mid 70s maybe, but then um, he went into almost like disco at the late 70s. And then the heavy metal stuff sort of came out when he came back in the late eight, mid to late 80s when that was what the, you know, that was that was what all the big stuff. That was when Motley Crue and Aerosmith and Bon Jovi were around. Yeah. And he sort of like came back. And he tried to survive in that in that environment. Um, so that's where we're all like, oh, he's like in, he's real proper heavy metal. And you go, well, he is and he isn't. Um, all the leather jacket and leather trousers stuff sort of comes from the eighties. 
but he was around for 20 years before that. Um, so yeah, I could just do 10 Alice Cooper tracks. So you say I like music, I like Alice, yeah, I do, I do. But then I just like, so so when it comes down to like, do you like, uh, so you're into heavy metal, it's just kind of like, well, no, not really, because I like the Pet Shop Boys, and I like uh, Dolly Parton, and Tina Turner, and Otis Redding, and Marvin Gaye, and uh, you know, I like, I like all sorts of music, right? And I like classical music, and I like film scores, really big fan of John Carter, Carpenter and Ennio Morricone and so you know I like all genres and when when you look at something like Uncle which was the sitcom I did where I played a musician uh, to write a different song every week and so they'd very deliberately try and pick different genres yeah so they'd say do we need sort of like a singer songwriter like um like Carol King or something and I'd go fine and I'd sort of and then it might end up being a little bit more like Billy Joel, but like, do you know what I mean? You'd sort of like pick a singer-songwriter, and I think at, at first there was sort of like a little bit of a, a back and forth about how much of that character was me and how much of that character was a, a you know, a piece of imagination. Yeah. And um, and I think at first they were just like, oh yeah, it, you know, he your character really likes Alice Cooper. And I think there's one episode where um, I'm uh, one of my girlfriends has uh, got an Alice Cooper T-shirt on that she's picked up off my floor. And I was sort of like, I'd rather we didn't do that again because that's me. Do you know what I mean? I'm Alice Cooper. And they'd already cleared the image and I was just sort of like, I'd rather we didn't use that. And so when you get into the second series, I'm wearing sort of like Elvis Costello T-shirts. Right. And it's just kind of like, that was because I was like, I'm Alice Cooper. That's that's what that's what I'm into. But my character, he's a he's a singer songwriter musician. He'd be into all different genres, which is why like all of the songs in Uncle are kind of like slightly different. You know, they're different genres. You know, um, yeah. I don't know why I'm talking about that. It's all right. <laughs> it's fine. So when you write music, is it guitar or piano? What what do you like writing stuff on? I write it in my head. Right. And then I'll work it out on a guitar. Uh, I can play guitar, but I'm not. I'm not amazing. I think. I think what happened was I started out as a as a solo act, and um, I would you know go up and down the country with a guitar. And there's two things that would happen: is uh, whenever somebody sees a comedian with a guitar, everyone gets very tense in the room, and they're just like, "Oh no." <laughs> so I never liked, I never liked the impending doom of a musical comedian uh, stepping onto the stage. And then, um, uh, then I started working with a band, and they're so much better than me that I kind of lost a lot of confidence in that. So it's one of I was just saying to you before we started recording. One of my aims of lockdown was to sort of like get really good on guitar, and I just haven't. I've had other stuff to do, but I spent a month not doing anything, and it's just one of those things where I can just see him staring at me in the corner of the room, and I just think maybe I'll put you in another room. (laughs) 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 I just feel so guilty looking at them all the time. But um, but yeah, I sort of like. I've got maybe a little bit rusty, but um, I, I used to, I used to, I used to love playing guitar. Um, but when it comes to writing a song, what I'll do is I'll have sort of like uh, the title for a song, or 
like a lyric in my head and I'll go for a walk around the block and then I'll sing to myself and I'll sing it to my phone and I'll get back and I'll work out what all the chords are. That's one way of doing it. Like some songs, like a song like, um, I wrote a song off my first album called 15 Reasons. I wrote that almost in one continuous go. Yeah. Which was, I came up with the first lyric. It was like, number one, I've got a real nice house. I share it with my parents, but they're quiet as a mouth. And I was just sort of like, it was literally, it all came out in one continuous thread because it was like a countdown song or it's a count up song, but yeah. So that worked like that. And a song like He Makes You Look Fat, I had the title in my head for about a year and then I eventually just said, right, I need a song. And I wrote that in one go. It probably took one minute longer to write it than it does to sing it. And then um, there are other songs, like even songs from Uncle that have taken weeks and months. And I've got songs that I've been working on on this album that have literally just been Roll, rollover songs where I wrote them for like a project I wrote them for my 2012 Edinburgh show and I, I couldn't get the lyrics right and so I, I, they were a rollover to the next album and then couldn't get the lyrics right and then they were a rollover to Live at the Electric and then Heavy Entertainment and then the next album and it's just kind of like so I've got songs that have been around for years It's weird how that happens like I've had the same thing like I, and I don't know what it is but like sometimes a song will just pour out almost fully formed and then I've got other stuff that I've lit it's literally taken me three years to finish I've had the music I've had the first verse but couldn't figure out where to take it and it's great triumphant feeling when you finally nail it down but I I wish I knew a a way to sort of break past that when it happens yeah and and I'm not lazy but I do tend to think that the ones that are the easiest to write are the best ones oh yeah without a shadow of a doubt because even as I listen to um, I listen to all the songs off the Uncle soundtrack and I I remember the ones that were easy I wrote the first series in a week you know the first series of songs I didn't write the series yeah I wrote the first um, seven songs in one week where I went away and I wrote, wrote a song a day and it was just like there and then I came back and I recorded them easy yeah second series there was one that I spent three, you know, a month before recording, uh, trying to write it. And then while we were filming the actual show, we were doing like long days, Monday to Friday, I'd have to go into the studio at the weekend to sort of do it. And I'd give them a demo and they'd say, it's not quite right. And they rarely gave me any feedback, but with this one, it was just, it was fight for the future, which I hate. I think it's, it's my least favorite song in Uncle because it's got absolutely nothing to do with the series, basically. All of the, all of the, all of the songs that work in Uncle. Uncle was a really great exercise in terms of writing songs because basically they'd give me a title, then they'd give me a sort of a genre or like an artist. And then, um, and they all had to be a minute and a half. And so you'd have like these guidelines, which is a gift really, because when you're on your own, you could write about absolutely anything. Yeah. And because you could write about anything, you're just like, oh, well, fucking hell, that's intimidating. But when they give you, like, specific things and story beats that you kind of, like, have to stick to, then um, then that's actually really fun. And um, and so all of the songs in Uncle are all about either the character or the story. And at the end of the song, it sort of takes... Um, you've learned something new. 
So you learn either something new about the episode or the character, but you've learned something new by the end of that song. And with Fight for the Future, you could cut that song and no one would even notice. And that's the one that took the longest. The most amount of effort for something that had the least relevance or the least impact on the story from your point of view. Yeah. But it was all about flying cars and stuff like that. And it was just like, what's that got to do with the show? Although I've, I've watched it back recently and uh, that's, um, it's really good. The production level is really great. The lyrics are sort of funny. The video is amazing, but it's also irrelevant. So, you know, it's, it's technically it's good. All right, so who's your first track by? Thunder. Uh, the band Thunder, who I think are one of the best bands on the planet. I love them. I've never listened to a whole album, but when I was like mid-teens and I was predominantly like just into rock music, they were a band that was always sort of passed around between me and my mates. I bought uh, Castles in the Sand the single like in a, in a little cardboard sleeve cassette um and there were there were other tunes that are, that, that I liked but I never because like I never had a lot of disposable like money to like to buy albums firsthand um I didn't know enough about them to commit like 15 quid to to buy a record sure. or whatever but um but yeah there was always there were always tunes that I, I was really into well, they, they were sort of, um, they, they, I guess their two biggest hits from back then were Love Walks In and Dirty Love. Right. And um, those, those two songs are just absolute like, bangers. They're, they're great. But the thing, with, the thing that happened with Thunder was um, they just started getting into, um, into like the big leagues. Like they were hanging around with like Guns N' Roses and people like that just like they were just on the cusp of becoming kind of like the new hard rock band and then nirvana happened and then the whole fucking industry sort of changed and everyone was like into grunge and seattle grunge and all of that and, and then um and that kind of like put an end to a lot of those hair metal bands and i think the thing about thunder was they were never really like a hair metal band they had a bit of that image because that's what the image was that you were selling. But the music still sort of like stands up today, really. It doesn't really feel feel dated. Um, yeah, I, I just remember that when I was out like writing these songs uh, for Uncle, I didn't know anything about Thunder. And um, uh, so I, I thought that they might be like a, a European band. I just remember Dirty Love and Love Walked In as sort of like these songs that were sort of part of my youth. Uh, they'd always be on sort of like greatest rock ballads, you know, those sort of like compilation albums that you get at a petrol station and stuff like that. And, um, and so when I went away for this week to write all the songs in Uncle, I had one book with me and it was like this fan-made uh, book about Thunder. And it was basically a compilation of all of the interviews they'd ever done in Kerrang! or NME or anything like that. And uh, so I read that and I learned about Thunder and I thought that's interesting. And then I came off and I started filming Uncle. And um, I have all these like Alice Cooper patches on my, on my jacket. 
And my makeup lady was uh, just said, oh, do you like do you like music? And I was like, yeah. She goes, what sort of music do you like? I said, well, I like rock music. She goes, well, who's your favourite? I said, Alice Cooper. It was probably even a short conversation like that. She goes, what music are you into? And I said, Alice Cooper. End of conversation. We worked with each other for seven weeks. Then um, uh, I did, um, uh, before we did Uncle, I did Edinburgh. And in Edinburgh, I used the track that I've picked for this. I used this track called Stand Up, right? Because the show was like a stand-up, uh, it's a stand-up comedy show. But it's also sort of like the songs about stand up for yourself. And that's sort of like tongue in cheek what the show was about. And in the show I had, it was about Evil Knievel and a dead cat, right? And it was about how my life mirrored Evil Knievel and then a cat died in my garden. And at the end of the show, I get this taxidermied cat uh, who's my only friend in the world. And I strap him onto a skateboard and I kick him over uh, 14 miniature London buses, right? And um, and I did that every day for two weeks. And uh, Stand Up was my walk-on music. And then two weeks into the show, I realised that one of the lyrics in Stand Up is, go and kick a cat. And I was like, you're fucking kidding me, right? <laughs> and I was like, that's spooky, right? So I went off and did Uncle and I worked with this makeup lady and then she and, and at the end of the shoot, I gave everyone tickets as a thank you to come and see me at, uh, at the Bloomfree Theatre in London, right? And they all came and um, they saw the show and at the end of the show, makeup lady came over and she said, uh, you use my husband's uh, uh, song as your walk-on music. And I'm like, because I've got Motley Crue in there as well. I was like, who's your fucking husband? <laughs> and she says, Luke Morley. And I'm like, Luke Morley from Thunder. I've just fucking, I was reading a book about him while we were working together, you know. Um, uh, I've used him as my walk-on music, you know. You could have mentioned at any point that you're married to Luke Morley in there. I said I was into rock music, you know, but like, it, it was like medicine. And like, within a week, uh, I'd gone to see him at the O2 and I was backstage with them and uh, was around their house and, and now we're mates. Now we're mates. He, he played on my last album. Like, it's just like, um, it was literally the amount of coincidences that went into kind of like that that meeting was just kind of like, I thought it was crazy, but um, yeah, he, he was on my last album, and, uh, and yeah, we're mates, and um, yeah, he's a really nice guy. She's a really nice woman as well. Um, but um, yeah, I just think I just thought that they were—they've always stuck with me. Like I always thought that everyone knew Thunder, and then you realise that kind of like um, that you know, uh, the, the, there were like a couple of songs that kind of like have really sort of like stood the test of time. Backstreet Symphony is one of the best albums, but um, Stand Up, I just think is a really good sort of, um, it's like, it's, um, it's Stand Up, but it's kind of, um, it's a bit harder, harder edged than a lot of their other stuff or some of their other stuff, but I love them. So who's your next track by? The next track is uh, Seahorses. Um, and I feel like the Seahorses don't get uh, enough of, um, enough respect really. They've sort of like, um, 
they've been lost to the sands of time a little bit. Um, Seahorses were John Squire's band, and uh, he met like this busker called Chris Helm, yeah. which happens to be my actual uncle's name, except it's got an E on the end. But um, uh, Chris Helm was the lead singer. I went to see them at um, I can't. It was either it was either Reading back in the day, so '98 or it may have been like V98. So I can't remember which one it was. I went to a bunch of festivals back then. And, um, and I just remember being, being there and everyone was shouting, Squire, Squire. And I always felt like really sorry for Chris Helm, thinking, well, he's the lead singer. He doesn't get any love. And like Noel Gallagher did some, um, did some he, he produced, they had like one album, it was called Do It Yourself. And, um, Noel Gallagher produced it or he wrote some songs on it and you can sort of feel some uh, influence there on it. Uh, I'm not heavily into Oasis or anything, but um, uh, but this, out of all of those Britpop bands, I think uh, Seahorses were sort of my favourite. They did like one album and then they had like a single. I think the single is called You Can Count On Me. And, um, and it's really difficult to find uh, and it was just this great, it was this great album and then this other great single that sort of implied that there was more stuff to come and then it sort of like never happened. But um, uh, yeah, I just, I loved, I loved the Seahorses. Um, I liked the stories in their songs. Um, uh, there was like, they've got a lyric in there that says, um, Auntie George and Uncle Mabel. And George and Mabel were the names of my grandparents. And so it's just kind of like, there are all of these kind of like things that I sort of like resonated with me. Um, uh, and I just, and I also think some of the songs are quite funny because you basically have, they're all vehicles for John Squire to do s noodling, right? Yeah. So you'll have like, uh, it'll be like a five minute song with a two and a half minute, uh, uh, two and a half minute of actual singing and then you've got two and a half minutes sort of like trail out as John Squire just sort of like plays his guitar over everything. And he'll be soloing under everything. And you kind of like go, yeah, yeah, yeah. But show some restraint, man. You know what I mean? It's kind of like, it's kind of like, um, it's kind of like, by the way, guys, this is my band and I'm going to do what I want. But um, I, yeah, and the song that I picked is um, uh, Blinded by the Sun, which, um, we was played on the radio a lot uh, on my way into school when I guess I was in the sixth form but on the way into school that would come on all the time and I would say I love that song it's only later on that you realize that they reuse like uh, the first verse like there's there's barely any lyrics to it yeah but at the time it feels like a lot more of an epic song. The video was them in, I think, a spaceship, and um, it was going wrong, and they were astronauts, and they were all floating around, and all that, that drums and stuff were floating around um, in zero gravity. Um, and it's one of the only songs that I know all the lyrics to from beginning to end. I am absolutely, I'm terrible with lyrics. I'm terrible with. Um, I'll be singing along to one of my favourite songs and I won't know the lyrics beyond like the opening. And I'm terrible with my own lyrics. Like I have to really kind of like, if I've got, if I've got, I mean, it takes me ages to learn lyrics. I think I might have dyslexia or something like that. I've never been looked into, but there must be something that's preventing me from learning this stuff. But Seahorses, I'm very proud to say, Blinded by the Sun, 
it's one of it's the only song that if you press play I can sing to it from beginning to end and not need prompting I, yeah I'm proud of that <laughs> I think the, the first song I ever heard was is it love is the law yeah that's a great one uh, and then there was a tune that was used on a on a British skateboard video uh, from the there's a British skateboard brand called Blueprint. So like, I, I was a skateboarder growing up, and I believe it was used on. There's a Scottish skater called John Rattray, uh, and I believe they used "You Can Talk to Me" on his section. I think that's the one. Um, right. And a lot of the music I would like pick up if it wasn't handed directly to me. Like I would get exposed to new stuff by watching all these different sort of skateboard videos, and that was a bit of a departure because usually a lot of skate videos it was either like west coast punk rock or it was hip hop and not a lot in between so along comes this like british video with a british band on one of the sections and it just it just stood out and it worked really really well as well yeah. um so this track is uh, this track is blinded by the sun which um yeah i just think it's beautiful So moving on from the seahorses, who are we listening to now? Well, this is Alice Cooper. And I could have picked any Alice Cooper. Well, not any. I wouldn't have picked anything off Lace and Whiskey, Raise Your Fist and Yellow Constrictor, which are my three least favourite albums. But I could have picked something off of anything else. But this is the second song that I know all the lyrics to. <laughs> and that is it. <laughs> then I'm out of songs that I know all the lyrics to. Um, this is... This is um, this is basically like I was saying earlier. I mean, he he, he sort of like does something in almost every genre, and then he learned when he did uh, "Welcome to My Nightmare," which was his first solo album in 1975, and he learned that uh, by doing a ballad, that would always be the big seller. So everyone would buy the ballad, and then uh, that would be his single, and. After that, he put a ballad on every album. Right. And uh, and I think he still he's, he still does that now. And you go, that's great. And I think that ballads are sort of like looked down on maybe a bit, um, especially maybe from a heavy end. I don't know. Um, I, I think stuff like November Rain has really sort of like stood the test of time. That's the thing that kind of like, you go Guns N' Roses, that's one of like the, maybe the top three songs that people can, Remember, like off the top of there, if non-Guns N' Roses fans, if they know any, if they know any, it will be like Sweet November Rain or Welcome to the Jungle or something like that. Yeah. And I think sort of like ballads are sort of like looked down upon, but in actual fact, um, not only are they kind of like beautiful and uh, romantic and uh, a good way of getting like your partner into listening to your favourite musician, but um, from a musician's point of view, it's kind of like it was the thing that got their album noticed and in the charts, you know, in a certain period of time. And for Alice Cooper putting a, ba a ballad on all of his albums, kind of has sort of, has sort of worked for him or worked for him for for a long period of time. And then he sort of like 
something like Lace and Whiskey, that album is like 90% ballads, I think. Like Frank Sinatra is doing covers of him. And you go, that's flattering. But at the same time, if you're Alex Cooper and Frank Sinatra's doing covers of you, it's kind of like, yeah. Well, like a ballad stands out in an album because it's contrast. Like you'll have you'll have the sort of the shorter, punchier tracks with all the hooks, and then the ballad takes it down a notch, and you, they usually require a little bit more attention because it's usually a little bit more heartfelt, and that's why they stand out. But if it's an album full of ballads, then they kind of kind of fade in. Yeah. Well, then. It... <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I'm writing an album at the moment and I've got a lot of slow songs on it. And I'm sort of like sitting listening to all of like the demos and works in progress. I'm trying to work out, you know, do I save some of these for the next album or do I uh, just beef up some of the other songs around them? You know, it's kind of like, it's trying to find that balance. I think um, Lace and Whiskey is just not, a, not a particularly... But that's... Lace and Whiskey is when, like, Alice Cooper... So Alice Cooper isn't his real name. His real name was Vince Fernier, and then he changed his name by Deepole to Alice Cooper. And Alice Cooper is sort of like a stage persona where he's sort of like... Um, there's, loads of, there's loads of stories about where they came up with the name. They were like, oh, it's a, it, was a, it was a witch that got hung in Salem, or the name came up on a Ouija board, or they tried to pick like a Tammy Wynette, Dolly Parton kind of name, mm-hmm. Alice Cooper, so that people would come by accident and then be terrified. But basically, it's like this stage persona. And when he made the album Lace and Whiskey, he was like done with that stage persona. He sort of wanted to do like a David Bowie thing where he would like come up with a different character for each, for each album. And so when he did Lace and Whiskey, he came up with a... Um, Inspector Clouseau-esque private detective called Morris Escargo. <laughs> and you go, what? <laughs> what? <laughs> They've got like, the album artwork is him with short hair and a moustache wearing a trilby. And the sort of like, the back page of this um, novel that he's written. And it's like, 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 it's, it's, um, yeah, like this Raymond Chandler kind of like uh, comedy detective thing. All of his TV appearances at that point are sort of unwatchable. They're him um, on stage with people dressed up as chickens with uh, with Tommy guns and stuff. I mean, it's like it's like you know, it's about as far from cool as you can get. This was in the period of time when he just wanted to be a celebrity. I mean. That was sort of his thing. He was really into pop culture and celebrity. And he was sort of like uh, decapitating baby dolls on stage and uh, and getting guillotined and, you know, all this other stuff that he was doing as part of his stage show. But really what he wanted to be was on celebrity squares playing golf with Bob Hope, right? And um, when he did this album, you can it, it's literally just kind of like, it's almost like he's trying to distance himself from like the really kind of like... Um, graphic kind of counterculture stuff that he was doing like to 10 years previous so i i mean this the song i picked isn't even off lace and whiskey i'm just like saying <laughs> that i think maybe after this song i think maybe lace and whiskey was the next album well i mean <clears throat> my, my perception of alice cooper was very much the those kind of tentpole moments that that he seems to be more known for like uh 
schools out for summer uh poison like the appearance in like wayne's world and stuff like that that was that was my sort of perception of him and when i listened to this track today i was just like oh there's this whole other side to this guy that i had no idea about and it made me curious to listen to more um i've never seen him live do a do a whole set i saw him get like a he appeared on stage to do a, a song with the Foo Fighters at Milton Keynes once, which is kind of a cool moment. Um, yeah. But other than that, I hadn't really listened in any depth, but I, but I really like this track. Well, it depends what sort of music you're into. Like some, some of my favorite, my favorite album was 1994's um, Last Temptation. That's my favorite all time album. I think every single song on there is great, but the, it's a concept album, so the whole album tells the story. So it's difficult to just pick one. And then um, one of my other favorite albums is Dada, which was 1986. And that is, or maybe it was 1983. No, it was maybe 1983. And that is fucking, that's bonkers. Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's really experimental and weird. And it's not like traditional rock. There's some sort of, there's, the opening track is called Dada, and it's sort of like this soundscape where you just have this man in a mental institution muttering to himself, like really low under the music. And it's creepy as fuck. And then uh, the, he did uh, 1980 Flush the Fashion, which is just a new wave album. And that's one of his best albums. It's like every single one is a hit, but it's all sort of like uh, influenced by, you know, um, like uh, cars and stuff like that. It's, it's, um, it's just yeah, it's 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 and it, and that's like a transitionary period between where Alice Cooper was creating a genre, and then in the late seventies, early eighties, he was sort of like chasing the genre. He wasn't like the king anymore, and he was just trying to sort of like go keep up with what was fashionable because things had changed. He was a pioneer, and then other people overtook him, and then he was trying to chase what they were doing, and then I think. When he came back in like 1986, he sort of uh, with Constrictor, and then really trash in 1988 or 89. That's when he really sort of like was like going, no, actually this is my genre, and I'm coming back and I'm snatching it back from Bon Jovi and Motley Crue and Aerosmith. This is my thing, and he sort of like reclaimed himself after kind of like all of his drink and drug addiction and all of that. But this song is called "I Never Cry," and it's off "Goes to Hell." which was his follow-up album to Welcome to My Nightmare. And I think I Never Cry is one of the most beautiful songs uh, I've ever heard, and I know all of the words. So that's Alice Cooper. Who are we listening to now? Next song is Pearl Jam. I haven't got a lot to say about Pearl Jam other than the fact that um, uh, I liked them. Um, I, I guess the reason I'm picking a lot of these songs and not necessarily because they're all my... Uh, I haven't done like a top 10 of my all-time favourite songs because I think that that is sort of impossible. So what I've done is I've kind of like picked songs that mean at least something to me 
that I really like. Um, and when I was at university, um, I had like two groups of friends. I had one group of friends that were really into Nirvana and one group of friends that were really into Pearl Jam. Um, I prefer Nirvana, but I haven't picked any Nirvana songs for it. Um, and the, so obviously I've got, I've got 10 on vinyl. Everyone's got 10. Um, but my friends were really, really into Pearl Jam and we'd go to sort of, there was this, there was this heavy metal bar called The Nexus in Southampton. Uh, we went to university in Winchester. It would cost £2.50 to travel down to Southampton for a night out, right? And we'd start out in Walkabout and then we'd go to, I don't know, O'Neill's. We were students. And then we ended up in like, oh, there might be this pub called The Hobgoblin um, or The Hobbit. Maybe The Hobbit is in Brighton and then there's The Hobgoblin, which might be in Southampton. If I'm talking out my ass, let me know. But this was back in 1999, 2000. And uh, there was this, after all of that, there was this heavy metal bar called The Nexus. And it was like two badly welded together sheds, right? And you'd go in and uh, they would have like, I remember they would, there would be a, 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 like a, a big screen that they'd project films on. But they'd, so there'd be like the car chase scene from Ronin and the Death Star uh, sequence from Return of the Jedi. And then they would play this fucking heavy, heavy, heavy music over it. And then you'd be hammered and you'd be looking at the screen and like the images and the music would all sync up. And I don't think it's because they planned it that way. I think it was just because, you know, edits go on beats and it's kind of like every so often it would sync up and you'd just be watching Robert De Niro coming out of a sunroof with a rocket launcher and uh, and it would be in time to something and you'd be like, oh my God, this is the most fucking incredible music video I've ever seen. Um, uh, it was just, it was a really cool place. And I just remember that I used to go up and I used to request this song every week and they would never play it. And um, we'd have student unions. Uh, we'd have like a student union night and um, I'd request this song every week and they'd never play it. And I'd re request it <laughs> every time I went out because I loved this song. No one ever played it. And um, uh, I, I got the album for like, I think it was like, there was there was this budget sort of um, uh, like video music store called MVC, and if you had an MVC card, you'd get an MVC discount. Right. And I think, I think I bought this album for like one ninety nine from a bargain bin, um, and it's the only it was the only Pearl Jam album I owned for a long time, uh, and the album was Mankind, and it's sort of. Mankind is this weird sort of album, which is like a mixture of um, sort of some pop music and then some very sort of uh, pretentious spoken word tracks. <laughs> and it, it's kind of like, it's just, I, I don't know. I, 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 in my head, I've got it fairly much convinced that it is uh, not a popular album. Uh, I think other people go for uh, uh, stuff like Vitality or something like that. This is, um, yeah, it's not it's not a very popular album. And then this song is the, the, uh, one of the only songs on the album that Eddie Vedder doesn't sing. <laughs> and so it's kind of like, it's barely a Pearl Jam song. Yeah, because like I thought the vocal, it's not your typical Pearl Jam track from, from my knowledge. And then I thought the vocal didn't sound 
it didn't sound as I would expect a Pearl Jam track to sound. And, and also he's got that vocal doubling that they, that was quite prolific during the grunge era, but you never heard it that much on Eddie Vedder's voice because it was so sort of powerful in its own right. So, so, is, is, so is it one, like one of the guitarists or someone singing it? I don't know. I've literally done no research. <laughs> I, just know, <laughs> I just know that I like it. It's even got like one of those sort of like 1960s sort of like, um, like clap beats in the background where it goes. Yeah, I picked up on that today, yeah. It's kind of like, um, who, oh, my mind's gone blank. Who did the Christmas album, the murderer that did the Christmas album? Phil Spector. Oh, right, yeah. So it's almost, it's almost got like a Phil Spector sort of quality to it. Alleged murderer. Is he, is, oh, he murdered someone, didn't he? <laughs> Killed someone. But, <laughs> feel free to cut that out. <laughs> but, but, so what we'll do is I'll research it and then we'll do like uh, the alleged and the murderer and then we'll just edit sure, in the one right. that works. Sure. Uh, but it's got like a Phil Spector quality to it. I mean, you know, so um, I can't believe, I didn't pick any Ramones either, but like Ramones always really loved Phil Spector. And then uh, they did an album with Phil Spector and then listening to the Ramones being produced by Phil Spector all of a sudden makes like perfect sense. And you go, oh yeah, of course, they were, they were doing doo-wop songs, you know? Yeah. And it, but what's really weird is that you've got like, a, a Mankind is like this really poppy, kind of upbeat <laughs> song, which is kind of like, it's got like this really good riff to it. I like the lyrics, I like the voice. I like, I like everything about the song. I love the song, I think it's great. I've heard absolutely no one outside of myself give it any love, including Pearl Jam fans. And I just think it's really weird. And it's kind of like, do you like Pearl Jam? Yes, but my favourite song is the least Pearl Jam sounding song that they've ever done. And, uh, and I don't really listen to them much outside of that. So this track is? Mankind by Pearl Jam. So, moving on from Pearl Jam, who's next on the playlist? Next on the playlist is, where are we? Uh, Steve Forbert. Uh, Steve Forbert is an artist that um, not, not many people in England have heard of, and I'm not sure how many people in America have heard of him, but, um, but uh, Steve Forbert went through this phase at the, at the end of the 70s where he was basically touted as being like the new Bob Dylan or the new Bruce Brick, or well, it was the new Bob Dylan, and he was about the same time as when Bruce Springsteen was getting really big. And he sort of does um, harmonica and guitar-based, um, bluesy sort of poppy folk music, um, like mainstream. Not well, I, 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 it's not folk music in the in the sense that it's kind of like it's a challenge. It's not challenging stuff. It's it's very poppy. And I would say kind of like commercial, but um, he was working with Warner Brother Pictures on his first few albums, and then he sort of like decided that he was being forced into doing songs that he didn't really want to do. Um, and so then he went on his own uh, independent label, and um, he's just been sort of like making music ever since. I've been to see him like three or four times in London and he always plays like fairly small venues in front of drunk audiences um, 
but there was a period, like, as I say, like late 70s, early 80s, where he was, like, destined to be the next big thing, and then that never really happened. And I guess, I guess Bruce Springsteen did a sort of similar thing where he was singing about, uh, like, like, modern nostalgia. Mm-hmm. And he was talking about, like, you know, uh, how difficult your dad's job was, and now you've got the job. And it kind of like you're nostalgic for this kind of like thing, but it's also about sort of like the struggles and pain of working class people. And um, sort of like Steve Forbert did something that was a little bit similar where um, this album, the album is called Jack Rabbit Slim. And I bought the album when I lived, I lived in Brighton in 2005 and um, I was in a vintage clothes shop and they used albums to sort of like decorate the shop, but they're also on sale. Mm-hmm. And I bought this album. I've, st- I've got it over there with the price tag still on it. It's two quid. And I bought it because the the album cover is so awful. <laughs> it's one of the worst. I bought it ironically. It's one of the worst album covers I've ever seen. It's kind of like this sort of like nerdy looking guy who's not, you know, that's not the selling point. It just so happens that that's how he looks. And he's holding this guitar in this faux sort of like rock and roll pose. And um, he doesn't really have like the presence of the stature to pull off the pose and it's just sort of like it's sort of like a cringy front cover and then the back cover is a postcard with him as a tiny little cowboy sat on a massive rabbit and it's kind of like you go I've I've got no idea what you're saying with this do you know what I mean I don't know what this is but I'm I'm enjoying the album and I'm going to buy it based on novelty value alone so I bought this album and I didn't listen to it for months. And then one day I listened to it and it was like, oh my God, this is the best album that's ever been made. It's, it's, Jack, Jack Rabbit Slim is, um, you know, I would say Last Temptation by Alice Cooper is one of my favorite albums, but that's not one of my favorite albums in terms of all Alice Cooper albums. It's one of my favorite albums. And right like in the second spot, I would say Jack Rabbit Slim is there. You know, I would say Jack Rabbit Slim is maybe my second favourite album. It's incredible. And I bought it with, you know, absolutely no expectations. And I've, and, you know, 15 years later, I'm still sort of like playing it to people when they come over and um, listen to it over and over again. I just think, oh, and I, I like it to the point where I haven't really, I've tried to listen to some of his other albums, but I don't love them instantly as much as I loved uh, Jack Rabbit Slim. So I just sort of like stick with that album. I think it's just a perfect album. Um, if you don't know who Steve Forber is, in the early 80s, Cindy Lauper did a song called Girls Just Want to Have Fun. And she, in that video for that, she has a house party, which gets more and more progressively out of control. And at the end, her boyfriend turns up in a tuxedo with um, some flowers. And he's like looking around the kitchen going, what the fuck's going on here? And uh, that's Steve Forber. Uh, so he was obviously cross-pollinated at some point with with Cindy Lauper, and they said if we put Steve Forbit in a Steve, Cindy Lauper video, then uh, he'll get name recognition from that, and then you know we're like planting the seeds for this big career that he's going to have, or either that or Cindy Lauper and him were like mates and off the circuit, and she invited him on. I don't really know the background, but I think it's just I watched the video once. I think I was in a restaurant and it was on the screen. And he walked in and I was just like, oh my God, it's Steve Forbert. Um, he's got one of the most magical voices. It's like, 
you can hear like there's a twinkle in his eye, but it's also tragic and it's also very husky. Uh, and he was a really young guy when he made that album. And um, and like I say, it's sort of like a combination of lots of different genres, but it's really mainly folk. There's loads of harmonica and guitar, but um, what I particularly like about this track is there's loads of Hammond organ in it. And I could have literally picked any track off this album. It's an incredible album, but I think the Hammond organ is the reason why this one sticks out. I'm always, when I'm writing songs, saying to uh, my producer, Andy, let's try and get a bit of Hammond organ in this and make it sound like this song. Oh, so what is this song? This song's called The Sweet Love You Give Me by Steve Ford. So, following on from Steve Floor, but who's next on your mixtape? Next on my mixtape is Otis Redding. Uh, yeah, Otis Redding is one of the uh, greatest recording artists that ever was. Um, his beautiful, his voice is beautiful. Um, he was so horribly young when he died. He's got the voice of like a 40 year old. But he was 20, 21. Um, in fact, I think he recorded Sitting on the Dock of the Bay um, before he died. Right. And obviously before he died, but like two, like a couple of days before he died. And then he died and it was, um, it was released posthumously. Um, yeah, I mean, like, I, I, he died, I mean, he, I didn't know how he died, but he died in a, not that we needed to dwell on it, but he, but he died in a plane crash and then, and then froze to death. Um, and they landed in a lake and then he froze to death and they didn't find him. Oh my God. And that's how he died. And he was 21. And um, I just think it's one of, you know, he did so much. He's still like the go to soul musician. That you, you know, on a night in, you play Otis Redding, and all of a sudden it all gets very sexy. He's, um, <laughs> he's, he's, you know, and he did, he did so much in such a short amount of time, and uh, it, it, his music still resonates today. And um, and you can't help but think what could have been, you know, like if that, if that, if that was the the standard that he was hitting in his early twenties, like. And he's he's, yeah. he's 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 got sort of legend status, anyway. But how much more could have been put out? It's yeah, massive he loss. He would have probably got old and then gone through like a funk period, and uh, it would have been a little bit like, mm, it's all right. <laughs> but um, I was trying I to think... paint a really romantic picture there, Nick, and you just shat on it. But thanks. <laughs> No, I was just, sorry. I was just thinking about like Latin, uh, <laughs> I was thinking about him turning into kind of like a, a, a James Brown knockoff. But um, but yeah, I mean, his voice is just basically absolutely spectacular. Um, and uh, and so when I was at university, I had like the best of Otis Redding on uh, on tape. Um, and uh, my dad picked me up um, uh, at the end of university and I'd just gone, uh, my girlfriend had just left me or just split up with me. She didn't leave me because we were all in halls. So she was still there. 
but um, <laughs> she, so she split up with me. My dad picked me up and I had this Otis Redding tape and um, yeah, put it in the tape deck when we had tape decks and uh, this song came on and I'd never heard it before and it just sort of like blew my brains out and um, uh, and then uh, what I used to do is I used to write plays and I used to play music in the background while I was writing to sort of like evoke emotions and stuff like that. Yeah. I used to have this on repeat uh, and I would uh, use it as sort of like um, scene change music for this show that I did um, in 2001. And so, you know, in between scenes, I played this and um, I'd come on and do like a monologue. Uh, but yeah, I, I think this, yeah, this song is, um, yeah, my, my favorite Otis Redding song. And it is? I've been loving you too long. Who's up next? Next we got uh, Dolly Parton, Loves Like a Butterfly. And um, I mean, I haven't got loads and loads to say about Dolly Parton other than the fact that she's amazing. Um, she's, oh, well, I've got, I, I went to see Dolly Parton. Um, okay, so when I first started my career as a stand-up comedian, I had one year well, I did really, uh, like, I had, like, 2010 was, like, my breakthrough show. 2011, I got nominated for a Foster's Award, and I was hot shit back then, right? And I basically said to my PR lady, um, who's my friend Amanda, uh, I said, um, I'd really like to see Dolly Parton at some point, you know? I wasn't, like, fishing, I just mentioned it. And Live Nation, who are a, um, you know, a live events company, and they do, like, all of, like, the big bands and the big comedians, and, you know, uh, they tour me. But I wasn't signed with them at the time. And uh, they, were, they were sort of interested in me. Um, uh, they got wind that I wanted to see Dolly Parton, and so all of a sudden I got these tickets to see Dolly Parton. <laughs> And um, so me and my girlfriend at the time, we went down to, um, we were, she was on at the O2 Arena and uh, we had these tickets, we had to pick them up and then it's kind of like, they got some letters and numbers on them and you're like, right, and then yes, keep showing them to all the staff and the O2 Arena is huge and they keep just like waving us along and you're like, right, right, waving us along, waving us along. And then eventually um, we end up sitting front row centre uh, at the O2 Arena and like we're surrounded by the biggest Dolly Parton fans in the world it's like I like Dolly Parton right <laughs> I don't know the words to all of her songs or anything and now we're sat front row centre and we're in between the two monitors right so you can see Dolly Parton like she hasn't come out yet but we're in between the two monitors I just turn around to my girlfriend and I just say uh, 
don't you fucking dare go for a piss during this. Because <laughs> <laughs> she, she, she will definitely notice, right? And then she comes out and she just, uh, she does like two hours, right? And she's like playing ukulele and banjo and like saxophone and trombone. She's like playing everything, right? And it's incredible. And she gets to the end of two hours and then she says, uh, Okay, thanks, guys. Uh, we're going to have a little break now. I'll see you after the interval. And she comes out and does another two hours. And it was just like, oh, my God. By the end of it, you're just crying. It's just sort of like, it's, it, she's just like, she's just beautiful. I mean, we were very close. We saw that, you know, she, um, maybe like the third row would have been better, right? We were so close. We could see sort of like all of the work she's had, had done. But... Um, uh, she's sort of like quite scary looking when you're that close, but uh, yeah, she's just beautiful, and I just think, yeah, she's. I've got so many memories from from that gig, and I just remember just leaving, just in floods of tears, just thinking that was one of the most beautiful. It's two people that I've seen like that. One is Dolly Parton, where I sat right at the front, and one was Bruce Springsteen, where I was at Wembley uh, Stadium, and we sat right at the back. He was like an ant. You know, and I still ended up crying. It was still one of the most emotional, moving gigs. Uh, I didn't want to go and see Bruce Springsteen. I went because my mum and my sister were going, right. and they always do stuff without me. And I was just like, well, I'm coming. <laughs> and then the reality of kind of sitting through, they said, oh, he does, he does three and a half hours. I was like thinking, three and a half hours of Bruce Springsteen. Because I listen to his albums, they're all very sort of like, I find them quite, um, you know, downbeat and dreary, and you go, oh, right, Bruce Springsteen, sure. Um, and then you go and see him live, and he's the most uplifting, amazing musician. Like, what doesn't come across on the albums is how life-affirming his shows are, right? And... He did three and a quarter hours, and I, I left going, where was the other 15 minutes? Where's the other 15 <laughs> oh, minutes? I felt ripped off, do you know what I mean? It was just like, I, I went in thinking, how am I going to sit through three and a half hours of this? And I left feeling short-changed. And, um, yeah, and th those two artists, they're not, you know, I, obviously I'm a, life, a lifelong diehard Alex Cooper fan, and I've seen him be great, but those are the two best gigs I've ever seen. And Dolly Parton's just absolutely incredible. And again, I used this song as uh, a scene change music for another show that I wrote. Okay, so this is? This song is Love's Like a Butterfly by Dolly Parton. Your touch is soft and gentle Your kiss is warm and tender Whenever I am with you I think of butterflies Multicolored moods of love like it's satin wings. Love makes your heart feel strange inside. All right, so moving on from Dolly Parton, who's up next? Uh, next is a band called uh, Massive Wagons. Uh, and um, it's a great band name. Uh, it's a great band name. I've, uh, I've seen them at. Um, I've never seen them live. I've seen them on the lineup for like, oh, a, a festival I've been to where they were on the day before, the day after. Didn't really know much about Massive Wagons. Um, uh, I've got a lot of my fans are into sort of like rock music and stuff. 
Um, so I sort of like heard their name around, but I hadn't really ever seen them. And then I had this fan that says, oh, I know this band called Massive Wagons. Uh, you should meet them or you should talk to them or whatever. And I was just like, um, well, I, I'm, I, not like I'm all right, but just like, um, sure, okay, okay. I mean, that's, that's it. Anyway, she ended up um, setting up this, uh, this Facebook chat thing where she set it up and she said, uh, hi Nick, hi Baz, um, uh, this is Nick Helm, this is Massive Wagons, uh, just thought you two should meet, I'm going to leave the group now. <laughs> and she left the group. <laughs> and then I was just like, in this awkward chat with, uh, with one of the guys from Massive Wagons and I was just like, hi, I don't know why she's done this. And he was just like, no, I don't know either, it's a bit <laughs> awkward, isn't it? And I was like, well, I've checked out one of your songs. So I listened to one of the songs and I was like, I've checked out one of your songs, I think it's, re I think it's really good. Um, and uh, he goes, yeah, we're fans of you. And I was like, okay, then cool. We didn't talk to each other for a year. And then, um, and then I was on tour and we were listening to their album. And there's a phrase in this song uh, that I just thought was just incredible. The phrase is raining nails. And it's kind of like, you can instantly kind of like, I think we've all been in, it's very evocative. I think we've all been in weather like that. Yeah, yeah. Where it feels like it's raining nails. Anyway, it just really stuck with me for like a year. And then I started listening to, you know, um, uh, their album, me and my um, tech guy, Aaron, listened to the album. And, um, Every single song was fucking great. And uh, now, um, you know, I just messaged them when we were on tour. I think they were on tour at the same time. And I messaged them and I said, oh, you know, listen to your album, it's really great. And again, it's kind of like, we've, uh, we've not met, but we're sort of pen pals now. They've sent me like, you know, I've got like a, ma a mouse pad and, uh, <laughs> and a badge and uh, their new album and stuff. And uh, I just think they're a really great, they're a really great band. Um, and they're sort of like a British heavy metal slash rock band. And I like the fact that there are still bands like that, you know? Yeah. Like, um, like a, a band that have transformed recently, a Reef, the band Reef from the 90s, and now like this proper kind of like bluesy, swampy kind of like uh, grungy rock band. They're fucking like Alabama swamp music, right? And they're fucking great, right? Um, and I just love sort of like I love British rock music. I love British rock bands. When I was growing up, I used to love Terrorvision, you know. Oh my god, and, uh, Terrorvision! That was the first first live gig I ever went to. Yeah, right. I I I I, I hadn't thought of them in a while, and then I realised that in one year in my life, I must have seen them ten times. You know, and you go like, yeah, fucking hell, they're a big deal, right? And um, and I love the fact that I love the fact that there's sort of like British rock music is sort of like still still alive, and it's not just sort of like being sort of phased out because there are more popular genres. They were touring how to make friends and influence people last year, and I saw them at Rock City in Nottingham, and it was phenomenal. I absolutely. Well, I, saw, I saw them support Thunder. And it was just like, oh my God, television and thunder. It was like a big deal. Yeah, it was great. 
But one day when we're out of lockdown, I'll watch Massive Wagons. And so, yeah, that'll be good, I'm sure. So, what is it about this track? Just the fact that it stuck with me. I listened to it, and then it stuck with me for a, for, for a year. And then I was sort of like, I kept like, it kept going round and round in my head. It's got a really good tune. Um, I really love his voice. Uh, I like its attitude, and uh, yeah, I just think it's a great song. I think it's. I think it's great. So this is. I think the album is great. This is uh, Ratio by Massive Wagons. Okay, so moving on from Massive Wagons, great band name. Who's next? Uh, next up is Tina Turner. Um, so me, uh, my mum used to leave me alone in the car when she was picking up my sister from school, and I would just listen to stuff on the tape deck. So it'd all be like Whitney Houston, Pet Shop Boys, Erasure, Tina Turner. <laughs> and, um, uh, Tina Turner was one of those uh, artists that we grew up with in our house. Um, she was like, um, and she, it was like her big comeback album, which was one with Private Dancer on it and all of that stuff. Yeah. Um, steamy Windows. Uh, yeah, so it would have been, she kind of like, uh, she had like this big kind of like 60s, 70s career. And then in the 80s, she kind of like um, went away a bit. Uh, she did Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome in like 1986, which had We Don't Need Another Hero, which is such an amazing song that, you, that it's only when you really listen to the lyrics that you realise she's basically just singing the plot of Mad Max 3. Yeah. It's the same with um, Who Wants to Live Forever and It's a Kind of Magic from Highlander yeah. by Queen. They're such um, iconic Queen songs that you almost forget that he's singing the plot to Highlander. And it's the same with um, We Don't Need Another Hero, where it's just like, she's literally singing Beyond Thunderdome in the song. And all the children say, you know, it's because Mad Max is the savior of all the children in, in the future. And it's just kind of like, yeah, it's like this, she, anyway, so she had like a comeback with that, and then she brought out this album, and then this uh, this album was really great. And then um, we went to see her again. We went to see her in Wembley Stadium. She was supported by Toto in 1996 Wildest Dreams tour. Uh, it was at about the time that Goldeneye was out, and she came out in the middle of this massive Goldeneye. And yeah, it was like that was it was it was a really great gig. Um, I was I was quite young, so I was like fifteen, I guess, when I went to it. Um, and I was sort of very much sort of like just doing the sort of stuff that my uh, my sister was doing. Um, it's before I sort of like really sort of like had my own tastes and opinions, I suppose, to that degree. I was into Alice Cooper. I don't think I saw Alice Cooper until two thousand. So. I was kind of like, I didn't have any money, so I guess it was just like, we're gonna go to see someone. We're gonna go to see a concert, and I just sort of like tagged along. 
But yeah, it was a really great concert. It's really stuck with me. The weather was great. You know, like those Wembley Stadium kicks where the sun is just setting right. And, yeah. And yeah, it's, uh, yeah, it starts off daylight and you're hot in the sun and then it's nighttime and everyone's singing together. And it's, yeah, it was just a great, uh, a great gig. So why did um, you pick this track? Well, Tina Turner is one of the all-time greatest icons. She's got the best voice. She's sexy. She's, um, she's got, I mean, she, I just, yeah, I think she's brilliant. This song, I used to do, I used to, <laughs> I, um, I used to have like, <laughs> I used to do drama when I was at school. And this song, I would uh, orchestrate. <laughs> dance routines for. <laughs> <laughs> I think I did it in private as well. I don't even think that, um, I don't think anyone ever, um, I'm, I think people have got a, a very definite idea of uh, who I am, you know, based on my stage act. But really I'm just a guy that, just a very sort of like gentle boy that really liked dancing to Tina Turner in drama, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> And uh, this song, I Can't Stand in the Rain, I think is just one of the coolest fucking songs ever. Her voice is brilliant. The fucking brass section is brilliant. Uh, it's got a, it's got like a bit of suspense in there as you're waiting for the fucking song to kick in. I think I Can't Stand in the Rain by Tina Turner is just one of the best songs ever. ever. And it's my favorite off the album. And, uh, and it means a lot to me. Okay, so moving on from Tina Turner, we find ourselves at your final track. So who's this by? This is by Tom Jones. Um, I saw Tom Jones a couple of years ago at V Festival. I had a gig. I was doing a gig at V Festival and uh, got free tickets and uh, went to see Tom Jones support Ollie Murs. And I thought, that's depressing. <laughs> um, it's, he's the closest we've got to a living Elvis. And um, and you need to give him more respect than give him the support slot to Ollie Murs. Although maybe he's quite old. Maybe he just wanted to go to bed. But um, uh, Tom Jones is just yeah. He's fucking. He went through a phase in the eighties of kind of like being medallion man. He'd have like a medallion and like orange skin and sort of like a big sort of like afro and a, a white suit that was undone to the navel and just sort of like, just cheese. And Tom Jones did, he was sort of, he's a bit like a musical version of Michael Caine, where in the eighties, those guys didn't get any respect, right? And then late eighties comes along and then all of a sudden Michael Caine's getting an Oscar and Tom Jones has brought out Kiss. And you go, oh, hello. And, um, and then, you know, Tom Jones sort of like reinvents himself. He's reinvented himself several times. When he stopped dyeing his hair and he went gray or white and he did kind of like the, uh, uh, he did sort of like that, um, 
that American gospel soul album mm. in the mid 2000s. That was um, it's called Praise and Blame. That is that's that's an amazing album. Um, I just think uh, I really like Tom Jones. Uh, I like his voice. I like his personality. I've seen him live. I thought he was good. I think he's professional. Um, I like the tunes of the. I like the songs that he's sung over the years. This song is essentially a novelty song. Um, what I like about it is his full commitment to what is clearly an absolute piece of shit. Uh, <laughs> it's 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 a shit song. It's a terrible song. <laughs> what what a, what a great way to end your mixtape. But like I, you sent me the list, and I like it. Took me two or three attempts to find it on <laughs> Apple Music because I think Apple Music was just like, what? What is this song title? It's there, but it took me mm. two or three times. Like I, I, I typed out the whole song title verbatim and it wouldn't find it. And then I kind of went a slightly different route and it was there. It was almost like, it was like Apple Music was trying to forget about this track, but like it's, listening to it, it it's enjoyable. Oh yeah. But I think it's more enjoyable when you imagine that Tom Jones has turned up uh, he said, right, boys, what are we singing today? And they've got, we've got it all printed out there for you, Tom. And he goes, right, OK. Puts on his headphones and he does it in one take and then he leaves, right? <laughs> he, you know, because that's what he does. He does, he does everything in one take. It's just the pure level of commitment that he goes into describing a man making a puppet. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Well, then he got some string and he got some wood. And you go, fucking hell. <laughs> he got some string and he got some wood. <laughs> he did some carving and it was good. And the way he just throws himself into it, well, and he got some string and he got some wood. He did some carving and he was good. It's like, <laughs> you know, fucking hell, mate. He like really believes in this this puppet master. Fucking, it's, it's like, it's Tom, it's Tom Jones using his sexy voice to describe a man building a puppet of Abraham Lincoln. <laughs> it's like, it's, I think it's, it's like insane. It's an insane song. And also, the fucking uh, electronic pipe music that they, that they use on it. It's just like, it's the least cool uh, instrument noise I've ever heard. It's like, it, it's like, it's, it's a cross between clown music and kids' music, and it's just kind of like you go, what on fuck was anyone involved in the production of this song thinking? Let alone, how's it ended up on the best of Tom Tom, um, the best of Tom Jones uh, uh, compilation album? You know, you just like, what's this doing on 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 that next to uh, next to fucking? It's just awful. <laughs> But I love it. Is it is, is it a so bad it's good kind of scenario? Yeah, and, and uh, but this completely lives up to it's so bad it's good, and then it becomes actually good, <laughs> where you go, actually, you know what? I love it. <laughs> you know, I don't even like it ironically now. I just sort of like go, yeah, fucking hell, why not? Why not sing about? Uh, I guess what, what are they? I guess the. Um, 
What do you call those ones with the strings? Yeah, is it is it marionette puppets? Marionette. Yeah, yeah. I guess he's making marionette puppets. So it's not just sort of like, he's not just making glove puppets. Do you know what I mean? There is some <laughs> skill to it's it. It's not just a song about sooty. No, it's, there's, there's sort of like, there's a level of skill that that puppeteer has gone through. So it probably deserves like an epic song like this. It's, it's fucking, it's nuts. I just find it nuts, but I love it. Yeah. So the, the name of the song is? The name of the song is Mentally, The Young New Mexican Puppeteer. <laughs> by Tom Jones oh look uh, thank you very much for coming on man this has been loads of fun thanks for having me I really enjoyed it they built him his own puppet theatre decked out with spotlights yellow and red and then they rolled him up in all the papers and this is what so, that concludes this week's episode. We've deliberately kept the music played below the conversation because we believe that all musicians should be paid something for what they do. So if you'd like to listen to the mixtape in full, you can find it on Apple Music or Spotify by clicking the links in the show notes of this episode. Or you can find and follow the Facebook page Mixtapes with Mike and I'll share those links on the post that announces this episode. If you've enjoyed the podcast, it would mean the world to me if you would share it on your social media with anyone you think would enjoy it. It would mean even more if you would leave us a positive review on iTunes, as that will help us reach a larger audience. But in the meantime, I'll see you next week for another episode of Mixtapes with Mike. Mixtapes with Mike.